let's talk about food. So we all know that what we choose to eat plays a role in our physical health, but could the foods we consume also impact our thoughts and feelings? Hey, it's Russell from A Modern Remedy, and welcome to the debut episode of New Ways, a show that explores solutions at the intersection of health, tech, and sustainability. Did you know that what we eat affects not only our physical health, but our mental well-being as well? Today I'm joined by Dr. Megan Lee, a career researcher, scientist, and academic at Bond University on the Gold Coast in Australia. Among her many accolades, Megan holds a PhD in nutritional psychiatry and has published research on the topics of food and mood, dietary patterns and mental health, body image, and disordered eating. During our conversation, we get into the pros and cons of different dietary patterns, findings from the latest nutritional research, and what food types we should stock up on to improve our mood. This is a great listen for anyone interested in nutrition and psychology. Okay, here we go. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Megan. Welcome to New Ways. Thank you so much for having me. So you've made some huge contributions to multiple fields of research, but I'd like to take it back to the very beginning if we could. Broadly speaking, what drew you to the fields of nutritional research, body image, and mental health? That's a really good question. So when I was younger, I had uh, moments of or times of sadness in my life where I would go to the doctor and uh, tell the doctor that I wasn't feeling so great and instantly would get prescribed with antidepressant medications and sent off uh to be on a waiting list to see a psychologist, so not being able to see a psychologist immediately. I also had uh, members of my family who were prescribed uh, certain medications for things that they were misdiagnosed with and um, they had some really negative side effects. So I was, after all these experiences in my life, I was wondering, like, why didn't anyone ever ask me about what was going on in my life, how I was eating, whether I exercised, if anything large had happened in my life? Um, I know one of the times I was in a little bit of financial trouble. Another time I had a rather large breakup with the first boy I thought I was going to marry. And these were things that made me feel sad, but maybe I wasn't actually clinically diagnosable to be um, depressed. So. Um, I had some really negative side effects from these medications because I was so small and um, they made me feel really wired, a little bit like zombie life at times, Um, lost my appetite, lost my sex drive completely, my libido disappeared, Um, So, and I gained weight. So I don't know, I got to a stage in my life where I was thinking that surely there is a better way, surely that these over-prescriptions of antidepressant medications could actually be resolved by looking at um, other factors that could impact depression. Right, okay. So you were seeking uh, better reasoning than just, well, you tick some boxes here, you're clearly depressed, right? And did that sort of lead you to um, diving a bit deeper into the factors that might have actually brought on that depression or anxiety or whatever it was at the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm not saying that antidepressants are bad for everybody. 
they're completely not. They are so useful and helpful for many people in society. But what the research is showing is that maybe the serotonin theory of depression where there's a lack of serotonin in our brains that needs to be replenished or the body is unable to replenish its serotonin levels, maybe that's only the case for about a third of the people who do have depression. And for those people, antidepressant medications work really well. But we're starting to find that there are maybe other factors involved in mental health issues like depression. So some of the biological mechanisms that we're starting to find are like the gut-brain connection. So what's happening in the gut um, is happening in the brain. Um, the HPA axis, the hyper, the, I always get this around the wrong way, the hypothalamus-pituitary axis. There's like a um, real relationship going on there. Um, shrinking of the hippocampus and neuronal damage from um, usually ultra-processed food, stress, things like that. And, yeah, so all these things in the gut microbiome as well that are influencing depression. On top of that, we've also got our factors, our other factors like uh, potential childhood trauma and other things that have uh, happened in people's lives that could be um, influencing these symptoms. So it's maybe not always about the um, lack of serotonin in our system. Interesting. Okay. And is that in a nutshell what nutritional psychiatry is? Having a look at your nutritional intake and that relationship between food and the mind? Yeah, that's right. So when we talk about the biological mechanisms that uh, may influence depressive symptoms, then things like nutrition, physical activity, sunlight exposure, sleep patterns, and social connection can really um, help potentially improve people who are experiencing the symptoms of depression. But what we are finding in our research that potentially this is uh, something that could help in a preventative way, maybe not as much as a treatment for those who are clinically diagnosed. The research hasn't really gotten to that stage yet where we can firmly say that we can use nutrition as a treatment. So it's more along the lines of those uh, those people who are trying to prevent getting depression in the first place, it's uh, more effective. So taking more of a wellness approach as in preventative or positive psychology. And, and that's, I teach positive psychology at Bond University and that's one thing that we look at is psychology has focused far too long on this deficit model of health where we are trying to help people who already have symptoms of negative mental health um, and it has always been disorder and illness focused. What my focus is is on how to get people who are, say we've got like a, t a continuum between zero, that's the worst you could ever feel, and 10, that's the best you could ever feel. If we've got people who are like sitting at a five, getting them up to an eight rather than getting people who are at a zero up to a three or a four, so this whole positive psychology, preventative medicine, um, lifestyle medicine type of um, focus. Okay. And with regard to the findings of your research, what are the most influential outcomes that you've found which could help get someone to a five or even a 10? Yeah. yeah. So 
Um, I did my PhD on diet and depression across the general population. And what we found during my PhD, the four years of my PhD, was that people who ate a diet that was rich in fruits, veg, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, uh, and water had a decreased risk of depression while people who ate ultra-processed, refined and sugary foods common in a Western-style dietary pattern um, had higher risk of uh, increased depressive symptoms. It does make sense. If you take care of your body, you could be taking care of your mind at the same time. Yeah. So I take it there's a lot of uh, happy vegetarians, vegans and people eating a Mediterranean diet out there. Well, that's the interesting thing. When I did finish my PhD, I was like, I get up and I do all these presentations and I go to conferences and I tell everybody, these are the foods you should eat. You should eat fruits, veg, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, water, probiotics, fermented foods, um, some omega-3s, lots of antioxidants, all these things. And I'm like, hang on a second. These are all plant foods, right? So then I looked into the research on people who eat plant-based diets, so vegans and vegetarians, and actually the research shows that they have higher rates of depressive symptoms. And I was like, what? This is weird. And I'm currently right now conducting an umbrella review of all of the research on vegan and vegetarian diets and depressive symptoms. And we're finding some really interesting findings there um, around the quality of the research that's been done so it may or may not actually be the case so stay tuned for that one when we finish that analysis we'll have a little bit more of an idea so keep an eye out on the socials um, when that paper gets published that would be a very interesting meta-analysis to read so right if i follow correctly uh, you believe it's more of a qualitative issue of the research than the actual diet that people are consuming. Yeah, that's right. And what we actually have done since my PhD is we've looked at um, plant-based diet and depressive symptoms. And rather than looking at whether or not vegans and vegetarians are more depressed or less depressed, we actually look at diet quality. And we have a look at those who are eating this really high quality um, vegan vegetarian diet like I just explained or low quality so there are quite a few vegans and vegetarians out there who don't eat fruits veg nuts seeds legumes they eat highly processed meat replacement products cakes pastries pizza they just don't include meat so just like the general population we have we can split vegans and vegetarians into the into the two as well these unhealthy dietary patterns and these healthy dietary patterns and when we run the data on those, we find exactly the same thing as we find in the general population. Plant-based dietary followers who eat those ultra-processed foods, higher risk of depression. Those who eat the more fresh fruits, veg, nuts, seeds have a lower risk of depression. So getting away from, say, being a junk food vegan or I suppose the idea of just, you know, because you're technically vegan or vegetarian, that does not necessarily mean that what you're eating is of the highest quality because... <laughs> Essentially, beer and chips, that's plant-based, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. And the unfortunate thing that's happening for vegans and vegetarians at the moment, in Australia in particular, because that's where I'm from, is 
they are highly marketed, these ultra-processed foods. And I know we are in the general population as well, but all these Beyond Meats and plant-based things that are coming out now because marketers are being like, wow, this is becoming quite popular to become a plant-based dietary follower. People are becoming more in tune to the environment. They care more about animals. They care more about things that are external to themselves. So the marketers have jumped on this and they're like, right, let's start marketing these super ultra-processed foods to these vegans and vegetarians. So they that can be a problem, especially when you start out, when you convert from omnivore to vegan or vegetarian. Your taste buds, especially if you've eaten quite a highly processed Western dietary part normally, your taste buds are attuned to that hyper-sweet, hyper-salty flavours. And these fresh foods taste boring or bland to people. It takes about 64 days for your taste buds to adjust. And then after those 64 days, eating this healthy dietary pattern, you will you won't ever want to turn back and go back to ultra processed foods again. You just gotta get through that 64 days. <laughs> mm, yeah, it well, it's very interesting that you can put a number on that. And um, I can speak from personal experience in transitioning to a plant-based and then a, a vegan diet, there was definitely a period of adjustment. I made the error of swapping out white meat. Yeah, primarily the only meat that I, I did eat at the time, to tofu, one-to-one, uh, a complete sort of swap there. And I, I had no knowledge. I didn't know what I was doing. And there was a, I want to call it almost like a shock campaign that my body went through. But then, as you pointed out, I don't really miss anything sweet or salty or sort of anything like that. I've actually found that also I'm not trying to make that up, that missing flavor, uh, with sauces or additives or anything like that. It's almost like you get your taste buds back. It's 100% how it works. And the 64 days comes from um, research that shows that it takes 28 days to form a habit. It takes 64 days to create a lifestyle. It's around that time, it's around that two-month mark where your taste buds adjust and when you do have a hyper salty or hyper sweet food, you're like, wow, that is too much. Yeah. It's it's funny, all right? So what you're sort of describing here, it, it's not something that you know we haven't all heard before. It's you know, a tale as old as time. Just eat your vegetables. Although now it's, you know, sort of not only will that help your body, but that will also help your mind health, which is it's quite an interesting finding. I mean, how do you find that message is received when you go on your speaking engagements or, or teaching, things like that? How does that land with the audiences that you're in front of? <laughs> well, it depends on the type of people who are listening. Most people love the the message, but I did one time have a radio station ring me and ask for an interview and they're like, can you tell us about your research? And I told them and they're like, oh, that sounds boring. And I hung up on me and I was like, what? Really? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but you're right. The whole thing about this is a tale as old as time. We've been told for years, decades, that healthy dietary patterns are are good for our physical health. They prevent chronic illness like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. Um, they decrease the obesity epidemic. But it's only been since around 2008 that researchers have actually looked at, well, what about mental health? So Felice Jacker at the Food and Mood Centre in Australia, she is one of the pioneers of the field. She wrote the first paper on diet and depression in 
in 2008. But now there's hundreds of papers on um, in the field. And we're starting to look at um, that gut microbiome relationship with the brain and how that's um, impacting or influencing um, mood. So that's really exciting and interesting as well. Yeah, and especially in the current climate when we've got issues with equity of access to mental health services. Not that this would be a straight replacement. You know, eating an apple a day doesn't necessarily keep the shrink away, right? But it's good to know that there are other lifestyle changes that people could make that may help alleviate depressive symptoms or even avoid it altogether. Yeah, and like I said, the, the research is so new, which it is exciting for us who are in research because we get to like do all the fun stuff and like find all the new things. But we also have to keep in mind that the research that has been done is very much uh, observational. So lots of cross-sectional surveys, a little bit of longitudinal data. Um, and there's currently four randomized control trials that have looked at this. But the exciting thing with those randomized control trials is they all showed the same thing. So Felice Jacker did the SMILES trial um, and Natalie Parletta did a uh, a trial in both in 2017 where they took uh, two groups of people. One was uh, given nutritional counselling for six weeks, maybe 12 weeks. I think it was 12 weeks. And... Um, told to change to a Mediterranean-style dietary pattern from their Western-style dietary pattern. The control group had a similar social support um, control but did not change their dietary pattern. And they were all um, diagnosed with depression, self-report. And the people in the intervention group who had changed to the Mediterranean-style dietary pattern, 32% of them had decreased their symptoms so dramatically that they no longer were uh, diagnosable clinically compared to 8% in the control. So they're massive numbers for any, any study on depression. Natalie Parletta found a similar thing. She was looking at um, uh, extra virgin olive oil, adding that and nuts as well. And then um, more recently, Jessica Bays, who is now at Southern Cross University, did one on young men, found the same thing. So, yeah, um, what is being done in experimentally is showing some really good things, but the field is still quite young and we can't make these big um, calls, particularly in a clinical setting. So um, not advising patients to stop taking their medicine and start changing their diet. So, okay, in thinking about this, if we sort of map it out, five, 10, even 15 years down the line. How long do you think before this becomes a clinical intervention? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure. So it takes usually what I've been told, it takes 17 years from the time you start your research until the time that it starts making impact in policy and practice. But we're already seeing changes. Um, the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research had their conference in Cairns last month, and we are already starting to see changes in policy and practice, um, and especially government policy documents, which is really exciting to see um, nutrition starting to be included as a complementary or an adjunct. Oh, and actually on that topic, congratulations on your recent appointment as Secretary of the ISNPR. 
So with that and your teaching engagements and ongoing research and you know everything else you've got on your plate, how do you find the time to make sure that your own nutrition is a priority? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I read this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear a few years ago, and that really opened my eyes to how you can stop, like move away from trying to create habits because it's like a New Year's resolution, right? You make a make a resolution and you never stick to it. Habits are kind of like that. And it really stuck with me, his thing about making a lifestyle change is about building it in to your identity so your habit isn't you're not trying to do a habit you're trying to change your identity so you're the type of person who does a certain thing and I've always struggled with going to the gym and now I'm able to do that every day because it's just part of who I am I am the type of person who goes to the gym but with nutrition it's always been my passion I've always loved food and I've always loved taking those types of comfort foods that you loved from your childhood and making healthy swaps into them. It's just like one of the things that I love. So ensuring that my nutrition is always, not always, my nutrition is um, I look after myself in that way. It's not hard because I just, I really enjoy creating meals and things and new ideas. But um, yeah, I'm not always, I don't always eat healthy. <laughs> I'm. I also do a lot of uh, research in intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is a philosophy where um, you eat when you want, how you want, what you want. As long as you've got some form of education about what is good for your body or you're listening to your body's cues to tell you whether or not that those foods make you feel well or not well. My research in nutritional psychiatry actually started with intuitive eating after I had my son and I couldn't lose the weight that I had um, gained from um, having my son and I felt bad about myself and I looked into research. I'm like, surely other women feel this way. And they do. <laughs> I was not the only woman who felt this way. And um, just intuitive eating is really about being gentle with yourself, moving for um, enjoyment and um, removing weight-focused thinking. So all of my research is about health focus. There is no weight focus. And um, quite often I will get people ask me to present or um, go on an interview talking about how to lose weight or how healthy diet is good for your mental health and you can lose weight. And I'm like, I will, I never will go on and speak about weight-centric types of uh, topics. It's such a broad measurement, isn't it? Weight, I mean, you can have a shower and gain, I don't know, half a kilo in water weight. So what does that actually represent? And to your earlier point about intuitive eating, I think outside of the mindfulness factor, I think, yeah, most people probably ascribe to intuitive eating. Eating what you want, you know, when you want. And then the key, I suppose, is that there's actually some degree of self-regulation uh, going on there as well, right? Like, how do I feel? What did this do or not do uh, for me? And I think that's that's absolutely massive to this whole experience of eating and you know life in general. And a lot of people say to me when I talk to them about intuitive eating, they're like, yeah, I love McDonald's. I'm going to go eat McDonald's every day. And I'm like, but that's not how intuitive eating works. After you eat that McDonald's burger, sit down half an hour later and really be in tune with how your body feels and your brain and 
all the symptoms that you're feeling from eating that McDonald's, then go and have a, a nice roast veggie salad or a, this morning I had a dragon fruit and pineapple smoothie. Like try one of those and then in 30 minutes check in with yourself and see how you're feeling. How are your energy levels? How is your your, your mood and your, your brain? Is it foggy? Is it clear? Um, how, do, how does your body feel? So that's intuitive eating. <laughs> A hundred, a hundred percent. We used to call, you know, back in the day, we used to call uh, that KFC, KFC depression because, you know, we'd go and have KFC and, you know, it was nice to eat at the time. It's got all the salt and the fat and, you know, everything that was sort of, uh, you know, biologically attuned to enjoy. And then, right, you end up feeling like crap. About 30 yeah. minutes later, you just totally regret it. And it's almost like being hungover. Yeah. And you know what? Like I said before, I don't always eat healthy. Every now and again, I will eat food that would be classified in my research to be unhealthy. I love a donut. I really do. <laughs> I love cheese. Cheese is healthy, probably not in the uh, at the level that I eat it. So um, things like that. So it's not about always feeling like you're depriving yourself of the things that you love. You need to build your nutrition. And I always say, think about what you can add. Take away this deficit-like idea. When we put ourselves into self-deprivation, we're just constantly thinking about all the things that we can't have. And then when you get past that point in time where you've told yourself you're going to deprive, then you binge. So what it's really about is what can I add? What more things can I have? So every time I cook, I'm like, how can I add one more plant to this every time? Like, how can I put one more plant in? So I imagine you've just got a wok that's like two meters tall with every type of plant in there. And it's just growing and growing. Um, it's the tower of vegetables <laughs> over there. And this is probably different for each person. But, you know, what are, I suppose, the top three foods in terms of helping your overall mental health and well-being? Well, the good news is that there isn't like three particular foods that you need to focus on. So all my research is about whole of diet patterns. So we don't single out certain foods or certain nutrients because that's not how we eat. We eat like these big wide diet patterns and they change all the time. So what I would recommend instead of like the three foods, I would recommend eating as close to the Mediterranean style diet as possible. So Lots of fruits, veg, nuts, seeds, all of those things that I said before. If you do eat meat, meat should be a seasoning, not the star of the plate. It should be a seasoning. It's the umami that you are trying to get from the meat to flavor the food. It's like lemon, salt, um, sugar. It shouldn't be the big star on the plate. Anyway, um, Mediterranean-style dietary pattern, high in legumes. So that's one of the things that we don't do so well in the Western um, diet is we don't eat enough legumes so high in legumes a little bit of red wine a little bit of dark chocolate is okay high in extra virgin olive oil that's kind of what I would recommend but like really changing the way that you look at meat consumption is really important from all my research that I'm doing at the moment it does show that vegans and vegetarians have greater diet quality despite the fact that I get into fights with lots of people on Twitter oh, really? about the nutritional deficiencies that are common in vegetarians. Every time I do diet quality markers, vegans and vegetarians always far outweigh the omnivores. 
So much so that someone someone yesterday was arguing with me about my research and then they turned around and said that my two populations, my omnivore and my plant-based populations, weren't even enough and they wanted me to go out and find more healthier omnivores to compare to my vegans and vegetarians. I'm like, you just proved my point. It's like they're more obese, they're less educated, they smoke more, they drink more, they've got, they eat more ultra-processed foods. I'm like, I know. <laughs> this is a randomly selected group of vegans, vegetarians and omnivores. They just happen. The vegans and vegetarians just happen to be healthier in all aspects. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very interesting. So it's just playing out in the data, isn't it? I mean, what are your views then on going all in on meat? That's one of the most recent diets that seem to be gaining popularity on social media, which is just purely eating meat every meal, all the time, all day. It's, it seems to be almost a, a replacement for every other type of food in the general diet, just meat for everything. I can only imagine then the effect that must have on mental health. Well, when I talk about people who I get into arguments with on Twitter, they are usually always carnivores. <laughs> they do not like my research. They do not like my rhetoric. Really? They argue with me constantly about it. My opinion on eating one food type, it would be just like if you ate only broccoli forever. Eating meat by itself is just like eating one plant forever or one or just cruciferous vegetables forever. It's the same thing. You're missing out on all those nutritional like elements of all the other foods. There was an interesting paper written by Felice Jacker, 2012, on meat consumption and depressive symptoms. And what she found is this really interesting U-shape relationship. She found, so the recommendations in Australia are 150 milligrams, 150 grams, not 150 milligrams, 150 grams of red meat three times a week. That's the recommendation for health. What she found when she applied that to her data was that people who ate the 150 milligrams three times a week um, had decreased risk of depressive symptoms, but those who ate any more than that had increased risk of depression, but any less than that also had increased risk of depression. So that was really interesting, this real weird U-shaped curve with meat consumption. And it just so happened to be right on what the Australian government recommends. So that was interesting. Yeah, okay. That's interesting that it aligned perfectly with those numbers. And I suppose speaking of perfect alignment, congratulations on finishing your recent fitness challenge. Could you speak then to how this uh, you know, unique and very worthwhile challenge came about? So at Bond University, I work in the Faculty of Society and Design, and we decided as a faculty that we wanted to raise a certain amount of money for breast cancer research, because most of us are researchers and we know how hard it is to get money to fund your research. <laughs> um, so if we could help um, by fundraising we would do that um so we all entered the national breast cancer research fund uh 57 squats now the reason for the number 57 is because that's how many women are diagnosed in australia every day with breast cancer so 57 squats every day for the women who have been diagnosed we raised three thousand dollars and overall the national breast cancer fund raised 1.5 million in the last month Nice. That's awesome to hear. 57 days of continuous training. How did that impact your nutrition? Did you have to change what you ate, how much you ate or anything like that? Um, interestingly, no. But what I find, and again, going back to James Clear's Atomic Habits book, this habit stacking that he talks about, 
works really well for nutrition because if you get up in the morning and you do some form of act action or exercise that will snowball into other healthy choices during the day so if you get up and you get out for a walk even and you get the uh, the sunlight into your eyeballs immediately so Andrew Huberman's always talking about getting the sunlight into your eyeballs first thing in the morning you're out there you're getting sunlight exposure you potentially go to call a friend and be like let's go for a walk or let's go for a jog together so you've got that social connection as well you're doing the physical activity you come home then you're more likely to choose a healthier food for breakfast lunch and dinner because you've started your day out with a health related activity you're then more likely to like take the stairs at work or park a little further away and do these incidental exercise activities during the day it really stacks and at night time you're then more likely to have better sleeping patterns and better sleep hygiene because you've done that activity in the morning and you've done the healthy the healthy choices during the day yeah that's Part of what happens to me, if I do make the choice of getting out of bed and going to the gym, it sets me up for the whole day. If I choose to sleep in and hit snooze, I'll feel sluggish and lethargic and I won't make the best decisions during the day. Yeah, so momentum carrying through, not waiting until you feel good, but rather you'll feel good after you do the thing. 57 days in a row, you certainly have the evidentiary base of doing something and then feeling great. Yeah, it was it was really good. And I ended up like going to Cairns for the conference and still um, doing the squats. So it wasn't always in the gym with the racks. It was like in my pajamas in a hotel room <laughs> <laughs> on some days. So what's your next challenge? When you, you look into the future, what are you most excited about? Yeah, uh, so I'm really looking forward to working with the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research. I've been a member of that for the last four or five years, but like I'm really excited about working together with Wolfgang Marx, who is the president, and the, other, um, the rest of the team. Um, working with Simon Hill, and uh, Tim Crow from Thinking Nutrition, along with uh, Lauren Ball at Griffith University and Associate Professor Talitha Best at CQU on all things plant-based and mental health. So that's where I'm going with my research career. We really want to do a prospective study where we follow people who are omnivores who are about to change to a plant-based diet and get some baseline data for depression, eating disordered behaviours, um, things like that, and then following them over time. And a healthy one, the rail trail, which is a bike trail along a old railway track that starts in my hometown and goes for 52 kilometres, has just opened. So I would really like to achieve finishing that at some stage. Quite a lot then, which doesn't surprise me. Uh, okay, so the signature question that you know we like to ask everyone that joins us for a chat is, you know, with everything that's happening in the world, and all the challenges that we encounter, both big and small, what would you say is a modern remedy for the issues that we face today? A modern remedy for the issues that we face for today related to nutrition psychiatry. I would say, and this might be going way out, but I truly believe that the problems that we have with nutrition are not individual-based. I think we're stuck in a system that doesn't help us make healthy choices. So something that I found really interesting the other day, who was I listening to? I think it was Simon on The Proof, and he had someone on who 
was talking about imagine having a child and you go into the toy store and in the toy store the toy man says all of the toys on the outside of the toy store are okay they're not going to kill your child they're not going to make them ill the ones on the inside might but it's up to you to decide which ones and whether or not they're good for your children so that's what happens to us in the supermarket right we get told, stick to the outside, don't eat the things on the inside. I'm like, well, stop selling the things on the inside. Do you know what I mean? Or I don't know. I think it's just the system that we're stuck in. And I think that the government could do a lot better, particularly for those who are in lower socioeconomic areas, could do a lot better in access to healthier foods, access to education around healthier foods. Maybe not completely eliminating everything in the middle of the supermarket, but maybe reducing the amount of choice that we have for those ultra-processed foods and also making it stricter on the ultra-processed foods not to have these types of branding on them that make them look healthy to trick consumers. You're 100% spot on with that. It has changed slightly over the years, but for the longest time, supermarkets here in Australia would have a single aisle or or maybe just part of an aisle dedicated to, quote, healthy foods. And it was the <laughs> strange aisle, the weird aisle. Hopefully that can expand to encompass, you know, the whole supermarket as it were. Yeah. But even those health food aisles, I go down those and like, I don't know how many of those are actually healthy. They're all ultra processed foods disguised as healthy. They really get to me. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully there can be you know more systemic change, whether it's government subsidies, access, as you said, um, and putting a bit of pressure on even, I suppose, the commercial aspect of it, right? Because you need the buy-in from the shops themselves. They need to have a reason to stock the things because at the moment they're making enough money as it is selling what they're selling. So hopefully there can be a conversation you know around that which might change things and obviously people like yourself who are putting the research out there to show the facts and the figures that actually back up this you know argument as well well thank you so much for your time megan it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and for people that want to find out more about your research you know want to learn from it where can they find you so my website is www.meganlovingmeagain.com uh, the same as my handles for Facebook and Instagram, I'm Megan Loving Me Again. And on Twitter, you can find me at Megan Lee PhD. Awesome. Well, it has been a wonderful chat and thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you so much for choosing to jump into the very first episode of New Ways. Bringing you insightful conversations is a true delight and this is just the beginning. There are many more awesome guests planned for the weeks ahead. Special thanks to Dr. Megan Lee for taking the time to impart some of her wisdom on the interplay between nutrition and psychology. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like, review, and subscribe to the show on your platform of choice. It's the best way you can support the show and help us grow. Head over to amodernremedy.com for notes and resources from today's episode. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. New Ways is a production of A Modern Remedy. This episode was produced by Russell Baker with music by Simon Zinzowski.